Knowing who you are changes everything in terms of the conversation. Knowing who you are and knowing who you're talking to changes everything in terms of the conversation. Knowing who you're talking to. Let's think about that. Knowing who you're talking to, who you're engaging with, changes everything, means everything in terms of the conversation. So this week is, I'm sure you know, how could you not, Halloween, right? And you think in terms of some of the the things that that are associated with that. One of the big ones of is, of course, the masks, the disguise, the hidden identity, right? So you're standing there at the door, and there's this little pint-sized person in disguise with a mask, with a costume. Who is this? Who am I talking to? Who am I engaging with? What are they? Are, Are they like the vampire standing here in front of me, or are they more like the clown, you know, in terms of the real person behind the mask? Who am I engaging with? What are they like? Should I be encouraged by the fact that they're standing at my door or scared to death? Who am I engaging with? Who is this? Knowing who you're talking to changes everything in terms of the conversation. Well, I have good news for you this morning. Knowing who you're talking to changes everything in terms of prayer. Because prayer is communication with the true and living God. And He has not left us to guess who He is. He's not standing in front of us with a mask, with a costume, with a hidden identity. He has revealed Himself. He has said, this is who I am. This morning we're going to talk about that just a little bit here in the second installment in this little mini-series on the topic of prayer. So if you have your Bible, I'd ask you and invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. It's there on the screen. Matthew chapter 6, starting in uh, verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. This is a section of the Sermon on the Mount, what is oftentimes referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And it is quite significant in terms of the implications uh, for us as we are trying to learn what it means to pray. So just let me, again, like I did a couple weeks ago, let me just set this, the, the scene, if I may, okay? So Jesus, this is towards the beginning of his earthly ministry. Uh, he has undergone the baptism by John the Baptist. He has endured the temptation in the wilderness by Satan. He has moved fo- forward. He has begun the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom and has begun a healing ministry as well, has called his disciples to himself. And now you see in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Sermon on the Mount is what flows out of that, the teaching. Fast forward to chapter 6, part of the teaching has to do with prayer. That's what we're in the midst of reading right now. Let us hear now God's Word. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9 on down through verse 13. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for allowing us this moment to be there on the hillside with your disciples. 
as we are hearing you teach us to pray. And we never graduate from this school. We are always needing to learn, whether this is the first time we have ever considered this question or the 55th and the half, uh, whether we've been wrestling with what it means to pray all our lives or we just started this morning. Uh, Jesus, would you please, please have mercy. Would you please uh, help us to know, help us understand the implications of your words here and not just understanding them in in an intellectual way, but it may it flow down into the depths of our being. Make us a people of prayer, we ask Jesus in your name. Amen. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, here's what's going on. Jesus is addressing the three big pillars of Jewish righteousness and religious practice, that being almsgiving and prayer and fasting. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Almsgiving being the giving of of offerings and gifts to the poor. And with each one of those three, he's giving warnings. And when it comes to the, the, the prayer, the warning that he gives is, do not come to the Lord... Uh, with a stance of hypocritical um, performance or thinking it can be somehow a manipulative posturing, but rather it needs to be from the heart. When you come to God in prayer, it must be from the heart. And then with that, out of that warning, then comes this instruction, this section, this larger section within this part of of the Sermon on the Mount, not just on prayer, but now here on the Lord's Prayer. Now, a few quick things on the Lord's Prayer. Just quick asides before we get into this. First, it really ought not to be called the Lord's Prayer. It's given by the Lord to the disciples. So strictly speaking, really, really when you think about it, we should be calling it the disciples' prayer. I'm not going to fight that battle, but that's just, you know, an aside, something worth considering. It's given by the Lord to us, his disciples. Something else to consider. It is not meant to be a liturgy set in concrete, but rather a template, a form, a model for us to adapt and use ourselves in a whole different host of ways. And we know that because of other ways that Jesus prays. Clearly, this is not just the only way that his disciples are to pray, but rather as a template, a model, a guide uh, for us. Uh, The last thing is the transition that you see here. That's that's worth noting. You can see it there on the screen. Pray then. Uh, There's a contrast that Jesus is setting up here regarding what he has just taught. We talked about that uh, two weeks ago. The, the, in the emphasis in the Greek is actually on you. So the idea being, this is how they pray, the hypocrites and the pretenders, the manipulators, this is how they pray, not you. You are to pray like this. And then he gives the instruction. And the instruction begins with an introduction. And the introduction, that first line of the prayer, is where we're going to camp out here this morning. In the English, it's four words. Our Father in heaven. Now, I got to tell you, there's sadly too many commentaries that don't even talk about this. They just fly right into the petitions. That's a fundamental mistake in terms of what Jesus is giving us here in terms of teaching on prayer, understanding who we are praying to. It is, it is foolish. This is foundational. This is vital. It is always foolish to skip over the foundation to just gloss over what's vital, to just fly through what's essential. 
Who we are praying to is that, foundational, essential, vital. It transforms everything in terms of our knowing who we are praying to. Knowing who we are praying to changes everything in terms of what we pray and how we pray it. It The who changes everything in terms of the what and the how. And we have to begin there. We simply must begin there. If I can put it this way, Jesus is calling us to pray. He's calling his people to be a people of prayer. Jesus is calling us to pray. He is calling us to pray to who? To our heavenly father. He is calling us to pray to our heavenly father. Now, there are three massive implications of that, at least, at least. And I'm going to walk through these. Uh, The third is the one I want to spend the most time on. But I do want to touch on the first two. So the first implication of this, what does it mean that that we are praying to our Father in heaven? At least these three things. The first thing being, there is a corporate element to prayer. There is a corporate element to prayer. The second point being that there is a powerful aspect to prayer. And the third thing being, there is a, I was going to say personal. I realized this morning it would probably be better to say relational There's a relational aspect to prayer, corporate, powerful, relational. Did you see what I just did there? I didn't mean to do this. I stumbled into it this morning when I realized it. It's CPR. (laughs) So whatever it takes to help us remember this, it's that vital. It's the CPR of the soul, prayer, okay? Let's dive in here. First, the the, uh, corporate aspect. So that's where we simply see right from the start... Our Father in heaven. That pronoun is not a singular pronoun. That is a plural pronoun. Now, so that tells us is that that prayer is not merely individualistic. It's not merely private. God may be the only one who can hear our silent prayers, but that doesn't make them exclusively private and individualistic. Now, certainly he is clearly concerned for the one. You can see that even as you read through this prayer. He is clearly concerned for the one, for the individual, for our own personal struggles and heartaches and burdens and joys. He is concerned for all of that. But he is also concerned for the many. He is concerned for each living stone in the building, but for the building. He is concerned for every part in the body, but for the body as well. And that needs to bleed into somehow how we pray and how we understand what prayer is. Prayer is not merely private, but there is a familial aspect to it. There are family ties, family bonds. When you become a Christian, it's not just your relationship with God that changes. When you become a Christian, you're brought into a family. And maybe you don't like some of those people that you get, but that's just like, it's the way it is just with your biological family. We're brought into a larger corpus of people. Those crazy Christians that bugged you and were crazy, they're now your brothers and sisters. Family ties, family bonds. And with those family ties and family bonds, we ought to understand there should then be family concerns. It's why Paul speaks of the need to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. We are praying to our Father in heaven. We are a family united. There's a corporate aspect to prayer. 
Our ties together in Christ mean that there should be concerns in prayer. We are tied together in Christ. There ought then to be these, these concerns that we feel, burdens that we feel for one another in prayer. We, we ought to, in a sense, viscerally want to argue with Cain, taking you back in some Genesis history here. We ought to viscerally, violently want to argue with Cain when he says flippantly to God, am I my brother's keeper? When, when the Lord confronts him after he has just killed his brother Abel and, and Cain snarkily responds to the Lord, am I my brother's keeper? And our answer ought to be yes. Yes, I am my brother and sister's keeper, which means we, we must then be given the familiar ties, bonds, concerns. We ought to be seeking ways to help each other, seeking ways to pray for each other. Seeking ways to help each other, seeking ways to pray for one another. So just a quick test you could run on that. Let's say there's a transcript of your prayer life. What does it reveal? Does it reveal the family bonds? Does it reveal the family concerns? Just something to consider. Just something to, to consider there as we think about the, the corporate reality of prayer, the fact that we are called to pray, all of us, to our Father in heaven. That's the first point. The second, and moving right on from that, is not only is there a corporate aspect of prayer, but there is, there's power being spoken of here because we are praying to our Father in heaven. In heaven. Our Father in heaven. Now, just obviously, but it needs to be said, this is not about cosmology. This is not about uh, God in the heavens. This is not about the stars, the sky, the sun. That's not what this is about. This is not about God in the heaven, but the throne of God. This is not about where he is, but who he is. That's what this is, is meant for us to, to grab hold of our minds, our imaginations, our hearts, our, our Father in heaven. This is not about cosmology. This is about his sovereignty, which at the very least we, we can speak of in terms of his might and grandeur and majesty. We could speak of his wisdom. Here's your $20 word, his omniscience. The fact that he knows all things and knows them very well, such that none of us, however fervently we are praying, are going to inform him of anything because of his wisdom, because of his knowledge, because of his power. Here's your other $20 word, his omnipotence. So he knows all things and knows them well. He does all things and does them well. So just as surely as none of us are going to be able to inform him of anything, none of us, strictly speaking, are going to be with, able to resist him, withstand him, because he is the king. He is the sovereign one. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of everything. That's who we're praying to, our Father in heaven. That, among many other things, ought to elicit in us a sense of awe and wonder that we have his ear. These little crickets, you and me, have the ear of the king. 
Some of you heard me use this analogy before. I'm just going to throw it out one more time, maybe again some other day. Our prayers are not earthbound. They reach escape velocity. Escape velocity, that's the uh, scientific term, engineering term that NASA uh, engineers have to re- reckon with, that if you're going to get a rocket to break Earth's orbit and get out there into space, you've got to get it going at some 25,000 miles per hour. And then it reaches escape velocity. Our prayers reach escape velocity. Our prayers are not earthbound. The king of the king of the kings hears us. The all-wise, all-powerful God of everything hears us. Now, among many other things, that the implications of, of what that is for our prayer at the very least that ought to develop within us as, as we're reckoning, even if we've got just an inkling of a, of a sense of his great wisdom and power, ought to create within us a sense of expectancy because of who we're praying to. A sense of expectancy, of, of hope, because we know who we are praying to, this powerful aspect of prayer. And again, Jesus is calling us to pray, calling us to pray to our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven. But that then takes us to the third point. And this is, like I said before, this is where I want to spend the most time. Um, and that is there is a personal, relational aspect to prayer made very clear in the fact that Jesus says we are to pray to our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, which among many other things tells us at least this, that God is not abstract. God is not abstract. He is not just one to be known about. He is not a theory. He is not a postulate. He is not just something to study. He is not just about your library. He is not just, he is to be known. He is to be known. He is more than just an object of our study. I've got to press on this. Not just to be known about. Not just, it's to follow Christ, to be a Christian. Implications of this are, to be a follower of Christ is not just to have our theological I's dotted, T's crossed, to be the most theologically precise, accurate group on the block. The studies, the I's and T's, all of that is not the goal. That's not the end. That's the start. We're not to just be a people who know about God. We are to be a people that, however scary, however dangerous, however uncertain this may feel, uncomfortable it may feel, we are not just to know about him and have him in a box clearly defined, but we are to know him as the living God whom we will never stop knowing and growing in. And and really, if I could just say this, to the degree that, in fact, we are studying and are pressing in with our theological precisions and our I's and our T's, here's what we will learn. He is not just a God to be known about, but a God to be known, because that's the message of the Bible, who he is, in fact, this great, mighty one. 
God is our Father. He is not just an abstract idea. Now, saying He is our Father, we ought to put a pause just at this moment and just acknowledge the potential barrier that word is. Maybe not for some of you, but for many others, to say God is my Father may not be good news depending on your experience. Failure, is, fa- failure as father is endemic, is common to the human experience. It's true for all of us. No father in this room has ever or ever will be perfect. No father that you have ever experienced could ever have been perfect. The failure in the realm of fatherhood and the the relationship struggle there is endemic common to all mankind, but tragically, distressingly, more so for others. So much so to say, God is my father, is not a message of hope. This may surprise you. That's pretty typical in the Bible. Think with me. The big three, the first, the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, lousy fathers. The favoritism that they showed to some of their sons and the carnage that brought to those families. David, the man after God's own heart and his permissiveness and his willingness to kind of live in denial regarding the the rebelliousness and the waywardness of some of his sons and the wreckage that that brought into his family and to the kingdom as a whole. So the struggle here is, you could put it this way, biblical. There's a lot of ancient precedent here. It's why you see the commands, Old and New Testament, given to fathers and mothers, but I'm speaking particularly about fathers, parents, but not just parents parents, but fathers. It's why we see the commands as to how fathers ought to live. You know what? All that, that, the ancient records, the commands, and the common experience drives us towards when you rightly, rightly bring it together is the longing for the one true good father. That's where it takes us. That longing, that need that we feel within is taking us to the, the, the desire that we would know. Who is it? It's God himself as our, the one true good Father, which... So then that we would be calling God Father is certainly a revolutionary idea for all of us, but Jesus is taking it further, not just with everything else I just said in mind, but with one more thing, and that being in his day, all through the Old Testament era, and then up to his day, this was unheard of to address God in this fashion. Yes, all through the Old Testament and and the rabbis of his day certainly were were glad to refer to God as being like a father, one among many metaphors, to describe him as being like a father, but never to address him as father. You understand those worlds apart. To describe someone as being like this, but then to address them like that, those are two very different things. And Jesus doesn't just, he doesn't stop here describing God as Father, but he addresses him as Father. The Aramaic word Abba is is what it would have been. And that word is the word that, that any small child would use to address their 
Father. Dad? Daddy? Papa? It, it's, it's, it's an address of, of familiarity and intimacy and vulnerability and accessibility, warmth and strength, all of those things packaged together. It's absolutely revolutionary. This personal, relational aspect to how we are invited, urged to come to God in prayer. I, look, I am no expert in childhood development, but I am a father. And as of just recent years, I am now a grandfather. So I've got a little bit of experience in this. I've got a story or two, experience or two, things that I have observed, the stages of development that you can observe with a child as they're maturing and, and the marks and the thresholds that they come to, in particular when it comes to the, the mental intellectual development, even as a young one, and, and their speech and their voices and putting uh, words associating them right, the, rightly with the right object or person. So I can remember in my own experience, drawing way, way, way back in the hard drive here, when, when the, the, the youngling would rightly identify the shape and the color, you know, expressing it verbally, the shape and the color, you know, that's a circle, that's blue, that's a cat, oh, and that's a dog, and then the, you know, parts of the body, that's the ear, that's the nose, and then to know, oh, that person is Daddy. That is a beautiful, wondrous thing to behold and experience. When that child reaches that point, it's a beautiful, wondrous thing. When that child arrives at that point, that marker in their development to know who to call daddy. Okay, spiritually, it is a beautiful, wonderful thing when a believer knows who to call Abba and is able to do it from their heart. Think, we some, think with me just some of the implications of this. The implications of what it means to have God as our Father. Where do we start? Where do we finish? We could be here all day. Did you bring a... Oh, we did bring a lunch. That's right. Um, uh, so many things. For starters, we, know, we can get a sense of already, who is he? He is our great provider. Meeting our every need in just the way it needs to be met. He is our great protector. Watching out over us, guarding us. Standing over beside us that we would not suffer any cataclysmic, eternal, final harm. He is this great presence in our lives, if we would but have eyes to see. Again, the image of, of warmth and, 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 and strength here, of, of intimacy and uh, accessibility, such that he then engages with us with patience and kindness and, and firmness and affection. Goodness gracious, the, th the things we could say in terms of the significance of what it, to, to know that he is our 
Father. It tells us some things about Him, but doesn't it not tell us some things about ourselves? Some things about ourselves and how we can engage with Him in communication, in dialogue, in, in, in prayer. We need, given that we are His children, given that we are His his children, that should tell us we need not come to him with hesitancy. We need not come to him with timidity. We need not come to him with fearfulness. But rather with humility, with devotion, with crazy, bold confidence. Given who we are. Given who we are coming to him with everything that we are sure about and completely unsure about. Coming to him with everything that brings us joy and fills our hearts with sorrow. Coming to him with everything we want to put in the spiritual, emotional, relational, physical buckets. All of it. All of it. Coming to him with our questions and our doubts. Coming to him with the things that get us up in the morning and the things that keep us up at night. Coming to him at any time, at any place, at any state of our hearts and minds. Coming to him. Do you get this is revolutionary to the degree that we are we will take this in, that we will breathe this in and breathe this out in, in prayer because of this relational personal dynamic that Jesus is saying, our Father in heaven. Father in heaven. It changes absolutely, positively everything. If you'll endure this, I'm going to try to give you an analogy before we land this plane. Okay, so a little backstory on my very favorite movie. I think it's my most favorite movie. The Empire Strikes Back, 1980, okay? Saw it in the theater. Um, stood in the line, a long, long line. Here's the thing. The thing that that movie is known for, this one line, this one line um, was a secret. It had to be kept under wraps because it was going to be a game changer. This line is the most, one of the most famous lines in all of cinematic history. No, I am your father. Okay? That's the line. But again, here's the thing. When it was being filmed, the only people that knew that later on James Earl Jones was going to dub that in in the sound booth, the only people that knew that line was coming were the producers and Mark Hamill, the guy who played Luke Skywalker, David Prowse, the guy who's wearing the suit, the Darth Vader suit, the man behind the mask who's saying the lines. That's not his line. That's not what he thinks it's going to be. I mean, it's what he read. But that's not what you heard in the movie theater. And the, but it was such a game changer. It had to be kept under wraps. It had to be secret. It would just ruin everything if the word got out as to who Luke's father really was. And, and so then you're sitting in, the, in the, the theater in 1980, May, June, whatever it is, 1980. Still today, people have that sensation. You know, if you start rightly with episode four and move to five, 
you, you heretics who start with episode one. If you start with episode four, there's some tension being built there, right? And there's the big reveal. And then oftentimes, you can see this on YouTube, there's this jaw drop moment. No way. You know, that's who he is. It, it changes everything for the viewer. But now put yourself, just imagine, just go with me here. Just It changes everything for the characters, like, for Luke, from this moment on, it's like, wait, what? How he thinks of, how he engages, how he relates to this figure is completely different than what it was before. Now, okay, you've been very kind. So, I know this seems like a stretch. Maybe it is. It seems like a stretch that I would go in this direction to try and say, okay, it's a game changer. The game changer, the radical, upsetting craziness of Luke Skywalker having Darth Vader as his father, and I'm somehow equating that to saying, wait, that's like us having God as our father. The reason I'm going with this is because it's that radical. It's that much of a game changer. It's that much of an earth mover. It's that much of a change when you realize what we're saying here, that the living God of heaven and earth, the one who's putting breath in your lungs and keeping your heart beating and the stars in their orbits and made it all and is going to remake it all, is your father. There couldn't be better news. And it changes absolutely everything when it comes to prayer. And we pray. Ah. Lord, without this, we are uncertain and unsure. We don't really have any footing. We don't know where we stand. Our hearts... If we're praying at all, they are anxious, worried, fretful prayers, or maybe boastful, braggadocious, presumptuous prayers, if we're praying even at all. But now with this, we have assurance. Now with this, there's rest. Now with this, we have access, and we can say thank you with so many reasons, so many reasons. We can say, Father, thank you. We can say, Father, I'm sorry for turning my back again, for paining your heart. Father, help me. I, I can't do it. I don't know, and I'm scared. Father, help them. Father, help us. I know you hear. I know you care. Help. Help them. Help us. Jesus, would you please, by the working of your spirit within our hearts, would you please help us to know what it means to call God Father and to do it every day through the day? And would you start it even this day, this week? We pray in your name.